My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Happy, uh, happy New Year. Happy 2013. Um, first Sunday of a brand new year. How many of you are excited to see 2012 go away? First service, people were hooting and hollering. Are you just happy to put 2012 behind you? Maybe even wish it never happened or be happy to forget about it. Uh, but either way, it's a new year and this is a time when many of us start looking ahead Uh, thinking about the days to come, the time to come, the month to come, uh, what we pray, what we hope, what we dream may become of it. Um, And I just want to encourage you this morning, I actually think where we are in our series in the scriptures, God's word, I think, has some wise counsel this morning uh, for each and every single one of us as we prepare for a new year, as we prep prep for a a new time. Um, So before we jump into where we are in the series, let me try to catch everybody back up to what we're doing and kind of why we're doing it, and then yet kind of what we've already done so that this morning will fit into the right context. Uh, We're doing something a little bit different this year here at Redemption Hill. Normally, we take a book of the Bible, and we like to teach through it uh, verse by verse or idea by idea so that we can get the whole scope and the whole thrust of an entire book of the Bible and then understand what difference that makes in our lives today. And we work through them. We've done numbers of books so far in the last five years. Sometimes we've gone a whole year in a book, like the book of Acts. Uh, Sometimes just a few months, like the book of Titus. But we tend to take books one at a time and work our way through them. Uh, But this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of taking one book and trying to understand kind of its scope and its thrust and how it makes sense in in our life now, we're taking the entire Bible and we're trying in one year to understand the scope and the internal thrust of the entire Bible, how all 66 books together work together to tell one central story, that there's one central story that's the thrust of the Bible and that's the story of God's redemption, of God's salvation, of God's work of grace in the lives of his people. So we're doing a whole year looking at the whole Bible kind of in an overview perspective. And some weeks, as you've seen, we've gone small. We spent three weeks in the first two chapters of Genesis. And then like last week and this week, one week in an entire book of the Bible. And we're going to make our way through the Bible so that we can see the whole thrust and the whole story. And this morning, in that series, in God's story and drama of redemption, we come to a place in our text this morning that's a very transitional period for the story and a transitional period for the life of God's people. And we're starting this week in, in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's in the book of Deuteronomy that we see a big shift for God's people. And their story is about to take on a whole new dimension. And we're going to be wrapping up the first five books of the Bible that are called the Pentateuch. And those first five books kind of give us the foundational history of God's people as well as the origins and then the working out and the beginning phases of God's work of redemption. And this is what we're seeing in this first five books of the Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book. So we're kind of closing out those first five books. And I told the first service this, and this kind of only entertains me, so maybe I'll entertain myself for a moment. But I love how God's providence kind of works in the smallest of details in organization. And when we sit back and pray and think, what would God be leading us to teach the church? Uh, Where are we? What would be beneficial? what would be helpful and we make decisions and you know we plan to teach this overview of the Bible and of the Bible story and here we are on the first Sunday of a new year about to go into a book of the Bible where God is dealing with his people who are about to go into a brand new phase a brand new season of life a brand new transition for his people and we're going to find Moses giving his last words to God's people kind of giving them direction on how to go into this next phase of their life well how to do it well and here we are brand new year about to go into a new year of life, a new phase of life for many of you. How are we going to do it well? 
What does God's word have to say about that? But even more so, again, that's kind of fun for me, but even more so, here we are finishing the fifth book of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and most of you, maybe many of you know or don't know that we're about to finish our fifth year as a church. Uh, We're about to finish our fifth year of of, of being Redemption Hill Church here in Richmond. And church, um, I wouldn't say scholars, but researchers, those who study the the life and the health of the church in America will tell you on average, over 80% of churches started and planted here in the United States will close their doors in the first five years. And at the end of January, we will actually close the door on our first five years. Uh, and hear and what God is doing and, and celebrate how gracious he's been to us, how that's not the reality of our story, how he's continued to work in us and, and in us and through us here in Richmond. And so we're finishing up kind of this fifth book and this fifth year and it's this transition for the life of Israel here in Deuteronomy, but it's a new year for us and a kind of a new phase of life for us as a church because after this fifth year, we can really no longer call ourselves a church plant. We've been a little more established uh, we're able to take care of ourselves a little differently. We're able to grow a little bit differently, and we should be maturing in different ways. So what does God's word here have to say to us entering a new phase of life? That's kind of where we are in Deuteronomy. So we're going to give a, a brief overview of that book this morning in a particular way, and I'll explain it in a minute. But to catch you up on the, where it fits into the picture, when we started the, the series, we started the story, we looked at Genesis, and we took our time in Genesis compared to other books, but we saw in Genesis kind of the stories of how God created all things, the creation of everything that is in existence, including mankind, and we saw the story of man's disregard for God and the fall, the rebellion of man in the garden, and we saw God's response to that, and, and we saw even in the beginning there in God's judgment of that disregard, the beginnings of God's promise to bring redemption to his people. The beginnings of the story that we're tracing all the way through the Bible, and we saw God begin to work that promise out in the life of a man named Abraham, and we looked at the life of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and then in particular his son Joseph. And we saw Joseph's story, and we saw how Joseph in his story in his life was taken out into Egypt wrongly, unjustly found himself in Egypt, but how God was working all things together for his glory and our good, and how eventually at the end of Genesis, not only was Joseph in Egypt, but his entire family, all of his brothers and his dad had joined him in Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, God began to fulfill the promise that he had made, back, even back to Abraham, that God's people would be numerous, have many descendants, and we see the, the people of Israel begin to prosper in Egypt. And that kind of closes the door on Genesis and we picked up in Exodus and the beginning of Exodus is interesting. You, you kind of hear a little bit about how God prospered the people in Egypt, but then it kind of reminds us and narrates for us the 400 years the people spent in Egypt under slavery and harsh oppression from the Egyptians. As they grew, you also find in the beginning of, of Exodus the story that there was a pharaoh, eventually a pharaoh came that didn't remember Joseph. And didn't honor Joseph, the memory of Joseph and what Joseph had done in Egypt. And he saw these people growing in the land, becoming numerous, so he put them into slavery, treated them cruelly, and they spent 400 years in slavery. And in the second, end of the first, and then the second chapters of Exodus, we get the first 48 years of the life of the man named Moses, who's become a, a principal figure in the story so far where we are. You get the first 48 years of Moses' life, up through Exodus chapter 3. And here's where something kind of happens that I just want you to see the big picture because when you're reading the whole thing and we're trying to stay at a larger viewing of this story, it helps to see how things fit. From Exodus chapter three all the way through the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, all of that narrates one year. One year. We get the first 48 years of Moses' life in Exodus two and then we find in Exodus chapter three God calling Moses as a fugitive Remember, he had had murdered an Egyptian and he fled and he was in the wilderness. Now he's 80 years old. God calls him and says, you're gonna go back to Egypt and I'm gonna use you to lead your people out of slavery. 
And Moses reluctantly agrees, and he goes with his brother Aaron, and God uses him to miraculously and powerfully deliver the people of God, Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery. The stories of the miracles and the plagues and the parting of the sea and the leading of the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And it's at Mount Sinai that God goes further in revealing himself, who he is, to the people. And in Exodus, we saw this as they got to Mount Sinai, the glory of God descended on the mountain and fire and a cloud, and God spoke to his people, and they heard God, and God revealed his character and his nature to those people, to the people of Israel, these newly redeemed slaves now standing at this mountain. God reveals to them who he is, and they see a, a kind of a picture of his glory and his majesty shaking on the mountain. And their response is, you know, Moses, you go up there and talk to him. We've heard him. We don't think if we ever hear him again, we'll live. So you go talk to him. And it's there on Mount Sinai, just as they've been released and redeemed from Egypt, that God reveals himself to his people. He commits himself to his people. He gives them a covenant. He makes promises to them, and he commits himself to them. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And here's the thing. Not only am I going to be your God and you be my people, but I want to dwell with you. I'm not just going to dwell near you. I'm just not going to keep my eye on you. I want to live amongst you, in your midst. And there in Exodus, God begins to give Moses his decrees, his picture of what it looks like to live in the presence of a holy God. What are the people, sinful, sinful, pervasively sinful people, how are they going to live in the presence of a holy God? And we saw in Exodus through the book of Leviticus how God gave Moses the stipulations and, and the, the systems of what it will look like to live in the presence of a holy God. And we spent all of the Advent season in the book of Leviticus just looking at these things that God had given his people, the sacrifices, the priesthood, uh, the feasts, the festivals, all of these things that he gave them so they could live in his presence, that he could dwell in their midst. It showed them their great need, their ongoing need for atonement, but it pointed their hope it pointed their, 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 the foundation for their future forward to what God would do in and through Jesus Christ. And we looked at that all the way through Advent up to Christmas. And then last week, Demetrius did such a wonderful job, if you were here, you, you heard it, uh, giving us the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers picks up here still with some more decrees and instructions that God gives his people in the beginning. But then, remember, it's still one year from when he led them out of Egypt. Then, after he gives them the decrees, we get the story of their journey towards the promised land. He had promised Abraham back in the beginning a land that he would give his people. Now we're going to see them journeying towards that land. And we chronicle kind of their journey to the land. And in chapters 13 and 14, we, we get what might be the most tragic disregard for God's promise and God's word since the garden. On the edge of the promised land that God had promised to give them after God had redeemed them, delivered them, provided for them, guided them, gotten them there, the people refused out of fear to go into the land. And we talked about that story last week. So God in response to their rejection, really, of his word and of his promise. He says, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna turn around and go back the direction you came in, and he takes them back towards the Red Sea. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation that rejected the promise of God and kind of the word of God right there in the promised land dies out. Until that generation, from the age of all fighting men and up, until they die, they're wandering in the wilderness. But while they're wandering in the wilderness, God is still providing for them. He's still guiding them. He's still caring for them. And we'll see a little bit in Deuteronomy, he's still defeating other nations and kings on their behalf. God hasn't left them. God's still caring for them, but this generation is going to die out for their rejection of God's word and the rejection of God's promise. And that gets us to Deuteronomy. And here we are at Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we find that this entire generation has finally died out. So here, remember, got to read it like a human, get the whole picture. If everyone from the age of fighting men and up had to die in the wilderness, 
Let's just make the age of fighting men the age that you have to be in the States to go into the military. You gotta be 18, all right? So let's just say that the age of fighting men in Israel was 18. What's the oldest person that's in Israel now that they're about to go when we get to Deuteronomy? 57. Close. 40 years they wandered. 40 years. If you were 17 when they refused to go into the promised land the first time, 40 years later you'd be 57 years old. The oldest person that we're going to that's hearing Deuteronomy, that's gonna hear Moses, is 57 years old. The majority of them are 40 and under. They were born and raised and lived their entire life in the wilderness. All they had known was manna, water from rocks, God in the cloud, God in the fire, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. The oldest ones, 57, probably down to 40, those who know were born in the wilderness for 40 years, those that were probably anywhere from one to 15, 16, the first time, they might remember the Exodus. Some of the oldest ones might have a memory of God redeeming them out of Egypt, crossing the sea, going to Sinai, if they've got a sharp memory from when they were probably nine or 10. The majority have no memory of it. So now the children of the parents who rejected the promise and the word of God originally are back exactly where their parents were, edge of the promised land. God about to take them into the place where he promised. And Deuteronomy records for us Moses' final words to the people. What's he gonna say? I mean, remember, he can't go with them. I mean, we learned that in Numbers. Moses can't go to the promised land. He's gonna give his command to Joshua. Joshua's gonna lead them into the land. He can't go. He's led them from Egypt all the way here. What's he gonna say? These people, the majority of them, have only known Moses as their leader. I mean, in a sense, this is kind of like their spiritual leader, the man who has spoken to God on their behalf, heard from God, God used to give his decrees and his care. What's he gonna say to them now when he sends them off for the last time to a place he can't go with them? That's what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy is Moses' last words to the people. And I tell you, just for your own enjoyment, this is one of the most phenomenal books in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy is quoted by Jesus more than any other Old Testament book in the Bible. Uh, Some of the most famous and most cherished passages in the Bible are actually found in Deuteronomy. Um, In fact, God requires, and we'll get to it later, I don't know if we'll pick up on it or not, but he'll require that the book of Deuteronomy be read to the entire nation of Israel every seven years. God will also require that every king of Israel, every new king in Israel, when he becomes king, has to handwrite his own copy of Deuteronomy. It's a fascinating book, and as we read it, you'll find out why. Um, so I encourage you if, you, if you haven't jumped into reading the Bible along with us this year, as we're preaching through it, we're also reading it as a church family. Deuteronomy is a great place to start. Because what you're gonna see in these three speeches that make up Deuteronomy from Moses, Moses isn't gonna say anything new. There's gonna be no new information in Deuteronomy. And Moses is gonna remind them of experiences and of things that God has said that should be cultivated into their heart, into their soul, into their mind, should be imprinted into their very DNA as they move into this new phase of life. Things that they should remember that will shape them, things that will compel their response to God, will compel their delight in God, will will compel, compel their obedience to God. Nothing new, it's all old, but very important. And that's why I think it has something for us today. As we move into a new year, as the church moves into a new phase of life, as you move into a new phase of life and as a new year, what is it that will help you move forward? I mean, what things do we really need to know so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past? Here's the thing, as bad as you want 2012 to go away and wish it didn't happen, that's not the best thing for you. There are things about the past, and we'll see here in a minute, that we need to remember if we're gonna move forward in a new way. 
And Moses is doing what he's doing so that the children of Israel, the children of the people that rejected the promise in the beginning, don't walk in the footsteps of their mom and dad. That they take their life and this promise of God forward in a way that's different than the way that was done in the past. And that's what we're going to see in Deuteronomy. So I, there's a million ways to kind of skin this cat in Deuteronomy, 34 chapters. There's a lot of ways you can break it up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out a handful. I, mean, I don't know how many I'm going to get through. Uh, the first service brought their lunches and kind of endured a long one. But I'm going to try to get through as many things as Moses reminds these people to remember. He says, here's the thing. There's nothing new you need to know to go forward, but there are things you need to remember. Remember is one of the most important words in the book of Deuteronomy. When you read it, underline it or highlight every time you see it. Every time you see a synonym of it. It's very important. Moses is going to say to, to go forward, there are some things you need to remember. And I'm going to pull out a handful or more of them. And, and here's the thing. I just want you to listen. I was really tempted to read the book of Deuteronomy to you this morning. Like, that, there's a sermon. I mean, if Israel had to hear it every seven years... You know, so should we. But instead, we're going to work our way through it this way, looking at things that Moses wants them to remember. But you're going to hear a lot of it. We're going to read a lot of it this morning. And as we do, you're, not gonna, there's not going to be a lot of need for me to comment or teach a lot of it. It's going to be pretty self-explanatory. So as Moses tells the people what to remember, what things they need to remember and have imprinted on their mind and on their heart as they move forward, I want you to hear it being said as it's being said to you. I want, I want you to hear it like Moses is talking to you. It's so clear. It needs so little of my commentary, but I like to hear myself talk, so I'm going to try to show some self-discipline. But here we go. First thing. First thing. You see it in Deuteronomy 1. You need to remember what you've done. It's a curious place for Moses to start, but you need to remember what you've done. Chapter 1, verse 6. When we were at Mount Sinai, the Lord our God said to us, you have stayed at this mountain long enough. It's time to break camp and move on. Go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighboring regions. Verse eight, look, I'm giving all this land to you. Go in and occupy it. For it's the land the Lord God swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to all their descendants. So he's gonna start this whole book out, this series of speeches by urging them not to forget what happened the last time Israel found itself in this place. The last time their parents found themselves on the edge of the promised land, it, something happened. And he wants to urge this generation not to forget what happened back then because the very thing that compelled their parents to act the way they did resides in their heart too. As they hear the story of what happened, they could easily go, you know, I didn't do that. That was my parents that did that. I didn't do that. But here's the point Moses is trying to make. What compelled them to do that? What was in their heart that caused them to do the thing that sent you back into the wilderness? It's in your heart too. And it's in our heart too. So I want you to hear this. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. Verse 26, chapter one. Here's what happened the last time God said, I'm giving you this land. Go in. Go in and take it. <clears throat> Verse 26. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you refused to go in. Say, so remember what was in the heart of your parents that motivated them to rebel against the word of God and the promise of God and the command of God, it, it's in you too. It, it's in you and I. I mean, each and every single one of us have something in us because of our sinful nature that wants to assert our own authority, that wants to reject God's right and true authority over our lives. We want to be our own king. Moses is saying, look, to go forward. You need to remember what was in them is it's in you. It, it's in us. Verse 27 not only did you rebel against the command of the Lord your God, you complained in your tents and you said, the Lord must hate us. That's why he has brought us here from Egypt 
to hand us over to the Amorites to be slaughtered. Where can we go? I mean, this is crazy. God just brought them out of harsh and cruel slavery into a place where he's providing for them. He's given them all that they need where he's taken them. He's guided them to this place that he's promised to give them. They look at his grace and they look at his deliverance and they look at his provision and go, why did you do such a cruel thing to us? Our sinful nature has this capacity to get our minds and our hearts to twist the grace of God so that we begin to see God's grace in our lives as something he's doing against us. And we can begin to treat God with contempt. How dare you love me? How dare you rescue me from that? How dare you provide for me? It makes no sense, does it? But this is what can happen in our hearts. We can begin to treat the very grace of God in our lives in a contemptful way and complain about the way he's provided for us and cared for us and continues to care for us. It's unreal. Verse 28. Our brothers have demoralized us with their report. They'll they'll tell us the, the people of the land are taller and more powerful than we are. Their towns are large and with walls rising high to the sky. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Enoch. Not as clear there, but just as it was in their parents to shift the blame for their decisions, it's in this generation too, and it's in you and I. It's never our fault, is it? What we say that hurts other people, what we do that dishonors ourselves, dishonors our family, ultimately dishonors God, the mistakes we make, the sins we commit, it's never our fault. It's always someone else's fault. It's always the circumstance that I'm in. That's why I did it. I had to do it. That person compelled me or made me do it. No. What was in the generation that rejected the land the first time, it's in their kids and it's in you and I. We all have a tendency to shift the blame of our decisions and our mistakes on other people. Moses said, you need to remember this. It's in you. Verse 29, he said, this is Moses saying, but I said to you, don't be shocked or afraid. The Lord your God is going ahead of you. He'll fight for you, just as you saw him do in Egypt. How amazing. They saw God on their behalf defeat an entire nation, part of sea, and swallow up Pharaoh and his armies. Just as he had done for you in Egypt, he's going to do for you now in the land. As you saw how the Lord your God has cared for you, listen to this, all along the way as you travel through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his child, now he's brought you to this place. But they refused to go. This generation, you and I, We need to remember, it's in us to resist the truth about God. If they didn't want to believe the truth, the God who had delivered them once will do it again. The God who had defeated the Egyptians would defeat the nations on their behalf in this new land. They resisted the truth about who God was even though they had experienced it firsthand. It's in them and it's it's in us. And Moses says you've got to remember this going forward. Verse 32, but even after all he did, talking about God, you refused to trust the Lord your God who goes before you looking for the, listen to this, looking for the best places for you to camp, guiding you with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Even as he's cared for you, delivered you, guided you, always looking for the best places to put you, always looking for the best places for you to be, you're gonna refuse to trust him. He can't do it now. It was in them, it's in us. We need to be aware of it. Verse 34, so when the Lord heard your complaining, he became very angry. So he solemnly swore, not one of you from this wicked generation will live to see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors. And that happened. Here's what he wants them to remember. The very sin in their parents that caused them to do what they did the first time they approached the promised land. 
to resist the truth about who God was, to shift the blame for their decisions to other people, to refuse to believe that God would do for them what he had done for them in the past, to twist his very grace of deliverance and provision into something that has done against them. It's in you too, and because of our sin, every single one of us deserves the just wrath of God. Moses says you need to remember this as you go forward. It's a really strange place to start, isn't it? Because of all the things and all the things you would want to say, I think, if I were Moses, I would actually want to forget all of that. Right? It's a new generation. It's a new time. It's a new year. Put it all back. Let's go into the promised land. Clean slate, clean start. Forget it. He said, no, that's the worst thing you can ever do. Because what caused them to do it in the past, it's in you too. And if you're not going to repeat the mistakes that were made in the past, you've got to be aware of what compels you to do it now. You're no better than they were, and we're no better than they were. These things reside in our heart because of our sin. Moses says you need to be aware. You need to be aware of these sinful tendencies that reside in your heart, the things that compel you, that tempt you to act out of fear, things that can compel you and tempt you to reject the truth of God in your life and the promises of God in your life and the the evidences of God's grace in your life. Moses says you've got to remember what you've done. If you're going to move forward well, you've got to be aware of what you've done, but not just that. You don't just need to remember what you've done so that you wallow in misery because of your sin. No, you need to remember what God has done on your behalf as well. That's number two. Remember what God has done on your behalf as well. You already heard some of it just when he was reminding them there in the first part, but in chapters two and three of Deuteronomy, Moses records a series of victories that God accomplished on the behalf of the Israelites while they were in the wilderness. So even though they resisted God, They refused to believe that God would do for them again what he had done for them in the past. Even though they twisted his grace and complained and treated his grace with contempt, even while they were in the wilderness, he still fed them, he still clothed them, he still provided for them, he still guided them, and he still defeated kings and nations on their behalf. In chapter two, you, you see this in verse 24 and 25. Just listen to this. Moses continued, then the Lord said, now get moving. Cross the Arnon Gorge. Look, I will, hand you, I will hand over to you Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon. I will give you his land. Listen, attack him and begin to occupy the land. Beginning today, I will make people throughout the earth terrified because of you. That's what God said. This was what God had told them. I will make people throughout the earth terrified because of you. When they hear reports about you, they will tremble with dread and fear. Just as Moses reminded them going forward, you've got to remember what you've done. You've got to remember what's in you. Don't be deceived. This is in you, just like it was in your parents, but Don't forget what God has continued to do on your behalf. Don't forget all the evidences of God's grace, continued care, love, and provision for you, even in the midst of your sin. Don't forget how he's conquered nations and kings, not only delivering you from Egypt, but here in the wilderness. How he's fed you, guided you, cared for you. Just as we need to remember just how easy it is for us to resist the truth about God and resist his grace in our life, we need to be very vigilant in remembering and recognizing and noting all of the ways that God's grace continues to work itself out in our lives, all the evidences of his grace in our life. I, I was telling the first service this, and I, I don't know of any greater habit or, or personal discipline that someone could do than to spend time every single day trying to make note of all the evidences of God's grace that they could find in their life that day or in the life of the people they love. Wives, kids, friends, family, people you're praying for. Every single day, don't lay your head down on the pillow until you can identify at least one evidence of God's grace that you can see in your life, no no matter what the day was like. We're gonna see there are things to even learn in those bad days as well, but no matter what the day was like, he's at work, always has been. 
I know of no greater habit to shift your perspective on not only who God is, but the very day that you're living in than to do this. Even if some days it's like, I'm breathing. It's been such a day. The best evidence of God's grace I can see in my life is the fact I'm still here. What an evidence that is. I mean, your breath, your days, they're not up to you. You're still here. What a gift. Are you a hunter of God's grace? I mean, is your perspective, is your perspective more clear and sharper on all the things you do wrong? Or is your perspective sharper and more clear on all the ways that God's grace continues to work itself out in your life in spite of all that? Moses says you need to remember what you've done, but you need to remember as well, maybe more importantly, what God has done on your behalf. Thirdly, third thing, you're going to need to remember what you've heard, what's been told to you, and you're going to need to remember who's the one that's told it to you. You're going to need to remember what you've heard, and you're going to need to remember from who you've heard it. So Moses has told them, reminded them of what's been done in the past, God's grace and their sin. Now in chapter 4, listen to Moses, chapter 4, verse 5. Look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations just as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Obey them completely and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. Listen to this. When they hear all of the decrees, that's talking about the law. Remember Leviticus, remember that second part of Exodus, the first part of Numbers? Talking about God's law, God's decrees. And this is what God says. When they hear all of the decrees, these are the surrounding pagan nations, they will exclaim, how wise and prudent are the people of this great nation. I mean, how quickly do we want to take God's word and just put it aside for fear of what people will think and hear? God's saying, when they hear the decrees I gave you, they're going to look at you and go, how wise, how prudent are the people? For what nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? What great nation has decrees, law, and regulations as righteous and as fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? Verse nine, but watch out. Be careful never to forget, which means remember, right? Be careful never to forget means remember. Never forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. Be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. Never forget, remember, Remember when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai where he told me, summon the people before me and I will personally instruct them. God will personally instruct them. This is what happened in Exodus. Then they will learn to fear me as long as they live and they will teach their children to fear me also. And as significant as what God said was, the law that God gave, the the decrees and the statutes that God gave, as significant as that was, as significant has to be the way that God did it. Has to be the way that God gave it to him. Listen to this, verse 11. You came near, Moses is recounting what happened back in Exodus. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain. Well, just picture this. If you have to close your eyes, just picture it. Well, flames from the mountain shot into the sky. The mountain was shrouded in black clouds and deep darkness and the Lord spoke to you from the heart of the fire. You heard the sound of his words but didn't see his form. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant, the Ten Commandments which he commanded you to keep and which he wrote on the two stone tablets. It was at that time the Lord commanded me to teach you his decrees and regulations so that you would obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. You need to remember what you have heard. Most importantly though, it helps to remember the one from whom you've heard it. Who was this God that was speaking to them this way back at Mount Sinai? Who was this God that showed up and fire and cloud and the mountains shake? Who, who is he? 
Chapter four, verse 32, listen to this. Now search all of history. Moses is about to give the most significant human research project in all of history. Search all of history. From the time God created the people on the earth until now. And search from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything as great as this ever been seen or heard before? Has any nation ever heard the voice of God speaking from fire as you did and still survived? Has any other God dared to take a nation for himself out of another nation by means of trials, miraculous signs, wonders, war, a strong hand, a powerful arm, and terrifying acts? Yet that's what the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, right before your eyes. Remember, God is a God of salvation. Who is it that spoke these decrees and these laws to you? Who is it that committed himself to you, that promised to be your God and for you to be his people, that gave you his statutes that you might live in the land and that his glory might be seen by the nations? He's, he's your God and he's a God of salvation. You need to remember that. Verse 35, he showed you these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there's no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he could instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so that he could speak to you from it. Remember, he's not just the God of deliverance and salvation. He's the God of revelation. He, he revealed himself to you. He showed himself to you. He showed you his glory on the mountain. He, he told you about his character. He committed himself to you, so committed to you, he put it down on stone, which is then carried around with you every single day in the middle of that ark in the tabernacle. He's committed himself to you. He's a God of salvation and revelation. Verse 37, because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants. That's you and personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. He drove out nations far greater than you so he could bring you in and give you the land as your special possession as it is today. Verse 39, so remember this and keep it firmly in mind. Here you go. What do you need to remember? What did they need to remember? What do you need to remember? The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. Remember this. The Lord, your God, Yahweh, the name that he gave you to reveal his character and nature, the Lord your God is the only true God. There, there is no other. And this God has set his, not only his eyes, but his affections on you. He's a God of great justice and great grace. A God of great power and at the same time, a God of great patience. This is the one who has spoke to you and what is it that he said? Chapters four through six in Deuteronomy, you get a kind of a recounting of the decrees and the laws and the statutes that God gave. In chapter five, you get a second giving of the, the Ten Commandments. And in chapter five, here's what I want you to see, because we've gone through the law before, I want you to see. In chapter five, Moses records how the previous generation responded at Mount Sinai when God gave them his word, when God gave them the Ten Commandments. He, he records how their parents responded. Look at this. Verse five, verse, chapter five, verse 26. Can any living thing hear the voice of the living God from the heart of a fire as we did and yet survive? Now go yourself, Moses, and listen to what the Lord our God says. Then come and tell us everything he tells you. And here's the important part. When you do that, you, you go here, get it from him, come back and tell us, and we'll listen and we'll obey. Such determination, right? That's, so, that's awesome. Boy, he's a big God. Go see what he has to say. Come back and we'll listen to you and we'll obey. It's good intentions, right? If only it had worked out that way and if only that had been true. Moses then in verse 29 records how God responded to this. 
God said, if only they had such a heart to fear me. You hear that? People said, we'll listen and we'll obey. God said, if only you had such a heart to do it. I know you. I know your heart. I see your determination. I see it. You're going to listen. You're going to gut it out. and You're going to do exactly what I say. But if only you had a heart to actually do it, to keep all of my commands always so that they and their children will prosper forever. The determination to be obedient was clear. But what God understood was that something needed to happen to their hearts. They didn't need to know God's decrees in their heads so they can muster up all of their willpower to try to obey them the best they can. Something needed to happen to their heart. The word of God didn't just need to reside on stone in the midst of the people. It needed to be on their heart. That their obedience would come not from a place of duty but from a place of delight and affection for who God is and what he's done. You see this a bit in chapter six. Listen to this, verses four through nine. Moses says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. These words that I'm giving you today, listen to what he says, are to be in your heart. Not in a list in your brain, not in a checklist that you figure out and do, no. They're to be on your heart. Repeat them again and again to your kids. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, whenever you're going to bed and whenever you're getting up. And tie them around your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I mean, do you feel and hear the urgency for God's word? I mean, last week, Demetrius reminded us in, in Numbers the primacy of God's word and preparing God's people for what he has for them. And the necessity to delight in God's word, not just to know God's word, but to treasure God's word, to delight in God's word, and ultimately to surrender to God's word. And you hear the urgency and, and, and the importance of, of God's word in the life of God's people right here. And we can't take God's word lightly. This is what Moses is trying to help. Remember, remember not just what you've heard, but from who you've heard it. And as you remember the one who gave it to you, you'll begin to delight in this word. It's gotta come from something in your heart. Remember what you've heard and from who you've heard it. But also, number four, remember who you are. Remember who you are and whose you are. And this gets to the issue of identity. I mean, who are you? I mean, how you identify yourself, how you define yourself, will determine the actions you take in your life. Whatever you take on as an identity, and we talk about this all the time, it's a whole separate sermon. Whatever you take on as an identity will shape the decisions, the attitudes, the desires, and the directions of your life. Moses is saying as you go forward, you need to remember who you are. But most importantly, remember whose you are because that shapes and determines your identity. Look at this, chapter seven, verse six. Moses says, here, here, here it is. You're a holy people. Here's who you are. You're a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. You're his. You're not your own, you're his. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. And this is who you are. Moses is saying, you've got to understand this. You've got to know who he is, what he's said to you. And then when that begins to dawn on him, you've got to realize he's chosen you to be his own special treasure. You're his holy people. Now here's the thing. Christians really aren't self-righteous people, are they? You're supposed to laugh at that. Maybe you're not, I am. And so before this can become an occasion of pride, oh yeah, walk into the new land, walk into new nations, we're God's chosen people. We're holy. We're the apple of his eye. Give me the keys to your land, please. And before it can become an occasion of pride, God's gonna deliver some other news they need to remember. 
Remember who you are. You're God's people. You're to be God's people. He's chosen you. He loves you. Remember this, though. Verse 7. The Lord didn't set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. You're the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That's why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand, the, the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because you had a great position in the city. It's not because you were rich and influential. It's not because there were just more of you that could vote a certain way. That's not why God loves you. That's not why God chose you. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. He, he goes on. He's even a little more pointed. I love the Bible. The Bible says some crazy things when you read it. He, listen to this, chapter 9, verse 4. You're going to drive the point home to them that they have to get. After the Lord your God has done this for you, talking about taking them into the land, giving them the land now. After he's done this for you, don't say in your hearts, the Lord has given us this land because we're such good people. Get the picture here. You're not. You're not good people. Remember what you've done in the past. It resides in you. You're not good people. No, it's because of the wickedness of the other nations that God is pushing them out of your way. It's not because you're so good or have such integrity that you're about to occupy the land. God has not shown his grace upon you in your life if you are a follower of Christ because he looked and said, oh, that's an integrity. That's a person with a great integrity. I'm gonna love him. You're such a good person. It'd be good to have you on my team. That's not how it works. Listen to this. The Lord your God will drive out these nations ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must, verse six, recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you're good, but you're not. You're a stubborn people. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God uses some choice language to describe his people. Stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked, hard of hearing. That's who, that's who we are. He hasn't chosen to show his grace upon us because there was anything good in us because we had more integrity than our neighbor, because we'd lie less than the person next to us. That's not why God has chosen to show his grace upon Israel or why God has chosen to show his grace upon you or upon me. God does it simply because he loves us, simply because he chooses to. You need to remember who you are. In and of yourself, there's nothing good in you that would compel God to love you, but he does. And he's shown his grace on you because of his goodness because of his kindness, and he's defined you as his possession. You're his, you're his holy people. And as Israel remembered that, and that began to shape the way they understood themselves, they understood their purpose in the place that God was taking them. They were to be God's holy people. And as they delighted in the God who had redeemed them, delivered them, called them to himself, and promised himself to them, they would obey his decrees and his statutes with delight and joy because he continued to be their God and they continued to be his people. And as they did that, the surrounding nations would see them and go, what nation has a God like this? This was God's design and plan for his glory to be seen by the nations, to use his people to reflect his glory to the nations, that his grace and goodness would be seen in the entire earth. And the same is true for us. God has defined us as Christians. He has called us his people. We talk around here about being ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors of, a, of God's goodness and grace. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are God's ambassador of reconciliation and redemption. When you're in that argument with your roommate or your spouse, your identity is that of an ambassador of the gospel. You are there doing what the king would do, representing the desires and the wills of the king. You're a holy people called out by God his treasure possession for his glory. That's who you are. That's whose you are. You need to remember that. 
because it'll shape what you do and how you do it. We need to remember it going in, but there's something else you need to remember. We need to get speeding up because we're, we're getting running out of time. You need to remember what's required of you. Moses says, you need to remember what's required of you when you get there. Look at this, verse, chapter 10, verse 12. Moses says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Accept it that you fear the Lord your God by walking in all of his ways. Love him and worship the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord was devoted to your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Verse 16, here's the biggie. Therefore, because he has chosen you and shown his love to you, though there was nothing good in you that deserved it, though you continue to resist him and reject him, he chose you. Therefore, circumcise your hearts. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn anymore. What's expected of you as you go in? Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. Love him, serve him, keep his commandments, and quit being stubborn. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? But simple rarely ever means the same thing as easy. See, if it's up to Israel or if it's up to you or if it's up to me to keep God's expectations perfectly, then we're in a whole heap of trouble. And as we go through the story and we keep working this out, as we keep working through the Bible and the story of God's people, what you find is that they were never able to do it. They could never ever keep God's expectations perfectly. In the years to come, they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't love him with their whole heart. They didn't walk in his ways. They did not stop being stubborn and stiff-necked. And in fact, as God promised the blessings when he gave them the law for obedience, he, he promised them curses for disobedience. And what we find in the story of Israel, and we'll, we'll, we'll work it out, we'll see it, was that God delivered. He, he gave them the curses for their disobedience. And you find that Israel, once they get into the land, eventually they're gonna be exiled from it again. They're gonna find themselves taken over by neighboring nations, taken into slavery again, not living in the land. And it seems like a very sad end to a very sad story that started off with such promise. But here's the thing, God didn't then and God never has had any intention of cutting his people off from him for good. Never. So Moses reminds the people, you need to remember what God's promised. You need to remember what's expected of you. But you need to remember what God's promised. At the end of Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see that God kind of gives Moses uh, this kind of prophetic capacity to see what's gonna happen down the road. And he's gonna tell the people, and hopefully they hear it, there's gonna come a time, like I just said, when they get to the land, they're gonna get kicked out again because they're not gonna do what's expected of them. They're gonna find themselves in slavery again, but, but God's gonna make a promise to them now, even for then. Listen to this, chapter 30, verse one. In the future, when you experience all the blessings and curses that I've listed for you, and when you're living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, you're gonna be gone again. It stinks, doesn't it? You just think about that? You're gonna be gone again. Get there, disobey, you're gone again. He's exiled you. Take to heart all of these instructions. Take to heart all that I've said to you. Take to heart all the decrees, all the commands, all the promises. Take them to heart. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, if you obey with all of your heart and all of your soul all the commands that I've given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He'll have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he scattered you. Even though you're banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. 
the Lord your God will return to you the land that belonged to your ancestors. You'll possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. Look at verse six. Here's the biggie. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of all of your descendants so that you will love him with all of your heart and soul that you may live. Moses is saying, look, here's the end of you. You're about to go into the land. When you get there, you're gonna screw up. Here's what God expects of you. You're not gonna do it. Here's the blessings for obedience and here's the curses for disobedience. You're gonna taste that. You're gonna get into the land and it's gonna be gone again. You're gonna find yourself in slavery again, but take heart, here's the thing. There's gonna come a day and God's gonna bring you back. He's gonna gather you back to himself and when he gathers you back to himself, he's gonna give you back the land. And when he gives you back the land, he's gonna make your descendants even more numerous than they are now. But even more important than that, here's what God's gonna do. God's gonna do for you what you can't do for yourself and do for you the very thing he expects of you. He's gonna circumcise your heart. He, he said, you need to circumcise your heart. Here's what's expected of you. You need to cut away from your heart all that sinful rebellion and stubbornness, stiff-necked attitude that refuses to trust in God's goodness and grace, that refuses to think that God is who he has said he is, all that stuff that's in you that you need to remember, you need to cut it away. Here's the thing, you can't. They can't, Israel can't do it. God said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do for you what you cannot do for yourself so that you can do the very thing I expect of you that you could love me with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole strength. And while they're gone in exile, when we get to the story, while they're gone and out of the promised land, God uses prophets to remind them. Remind them of the very promise that he gave back here, back here in the beginning with Moses. The very promise at the end of Deuteronomy that it's gonna go bad for you because you're gonna sin, because of your disobedience. But I'm not gonna give up on you. Even in the midst, I'm gonna bring you back to myself and I'm gonna change your heart so that you can love me so that you can obey me, so that you do delight in me. I'm gonna do it for you. Don't forget that. And so Jeremiah prophesies while they're in exile that there's gonna come a day when God's gonna give his people a new covenant. And this new covenant is gonna change their heart. What's, what's gonna happen is not new laws, it's gonna get new hearts. And while their people are gone, he uses Ezekiel. And Ezekiel reminds the people, listen to this, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says, God is telling you that I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the nations, and I will bring you into your land. Remember, that's what he promised in Deuteronomy. I will also sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and idols. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And God promised to do something for his people that would allow them, give them what they needed to compel them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength, that they would obey him not out of duty, but out of delight. This was the promise of God. So when Jesus shows up on the scene centuries later, he sees that people have taken the law of God and the decrees of God and the statutes of God that they were to delight in and obey with affection for who God is and what he's done for them, and they've made it a burden that people can't carry. They've made it a burden so heavy that people are being crushed by it. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Matthew 15, and he says, this people honor me with their lips, and they honor me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. You know, this was supposed to be something that was done from the heart. Love him with your heart. The law needed to be on your heart. But they couldn't do it, right? So they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If, I, if God were your father, Jesus said you would love me. You, you would see me. If you really loved him with your heart, you would see who I am. You would see me. Jesus knew that something had to happen in their heart. He knew something had to happen. He also knew what it would cost God 
for their hearts to be changed. More importantly, what it would cost him for God's people to love him with all of their heart. It would cost him his life. It would cost him his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul records this, that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this, listen, in remembrance of me. There's something you need to remember. Something new is about to happen. A new phase of life for God's people is about to happen and I'm not gonna be with you. He's told them that before, he's gonna tell them again, but here's what he's saying. When you do this, you need to remember, you need to remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup and the new covenant established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's like Moses was reminding the people going into the land, there's something you need to remember to go in. Well, Jesus is now looking at his people, looking at his disciples, looking at his followers, looking at us and saying, there's something you need to remember. You don't need to remember the the demands of the old covenant now, but you need to remember the promises that God had made. Remember the promise of God that that a day will come when he will do what you you can't do for yourself. But he will change your heart. He'll circumcise your heart. He'll cut away that sin from your heart. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new spirit. He'll enable you to delight in him out of obedience, not out of duty. That promise was from God and Jesus is saying, here's the deal, it's coming. It's being fulfilled in me. And what you're going to need to do each time you do this as they're eating this meal, you're going to remember what's about to happen when the darkness of the wrath of God is about to descend and the fullness of the curse of disobedience to God's law is going to be poured out on his body on the cross. And you're going to need to remember my death in your place for your sins. You're not only going to need to remember it, you're going to need to treasure it. And not only are you going to need to treasure it, you're going to need to rely on it. You're going to need to make it your own so that you could say that I, me, personally, by faith, have been crucified with Christ. It's I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. My heart is changed. My heart is new. And when we rely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sin, this is what Paul says. He says, when you come to Christ, you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure. I've seen the fulfillment of the promise that God made his people. I'm gonna do for you what you can't do for yourself and here's how God does it. Christ performs a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. The only way that we will ever be able to do what God expects, to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength is to be found in reliance upon the only one who ever has. And that's his son, Jesus. Abiding in Christ, relying on Christ, having faith in the person and work of Jesus relieves us of any sense of fear for the curses of disobedience, for the wrath of God for our disobedience against him. The full weight of God's justice for sin was poured out on his son in our place so that we can enjoy the full blessing of all that God promised and of all that Jesus deserves. This is the day being fulfilled that God had promised back in the end of Deuteronomy. Jesus has loved God and obeyed God perfectly in your place and he's loved God with full joy and God in response 
gladly transfers Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' merit to you as a free gift when you believe. When you believe that Jesus lived the life you were created to live and then died the death that you deserve to die because of your sin, God accepts that faith and gladly gives you the righteousness that is rightly Jesus. And when he does, God's spirit takes up residence in your heart and fulfills the very promise that God made back then and reminded them of in exile. He gives you a new heart. A new heart and new desire. So delight in God with all of your soul, all of your being, to find obedience to God, a delight and a joy. Do you, do you want a heart that's softened? Do you want affections that are softened to God this year? Do you want to obey God in your life out of delight and not duty? The Israelites say, we'll hear, we'll believe. Do you, do you want to delight in God such and obey God such that it's a joy? This is the very thing that God has promised and the very thing that God has done for us in Christ. And all it takes to experience that is faith. All it takes is believing God for what he said. Israelites were faced at that moment. Are they gonna believe that God is gonna do what he's promised? Are we gonna believe that God is who he says he is? Are we gonna believe that one more time when we get there, God's gonna come through on what he said? Same thing's true of us. He's promised to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and radically cutting away our heart and giving us a new heart and giving us a spirit that will love him so that we can love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Are we gonna believe it? Are you gonna believe it? He's fulfilled it in his son. Now, are you going to believe it? Let me pray for us. May God thank you for your good news, your gospel, that even though I... I fail to remember everything that I should remember about who you are. I fail to remember everything that you expect. I fail to remember all the evidences and ways your grace has continued to to cover me, to love me, to protect me, to guide me, to provide for me. All the ways I fail to love you with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. But even though I have a tendency to reject your goodness and reject your grace towards me, I thank you, though, that you've never stopped loving your people. I thank you that you have been committed to your promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I just ask this morning by your spirit uh, that you would produce in our hearts this morning an absolute delight and joy in the fulfillment of your promise in your son, Jesus. I pray that it will be something that we don't just know, something that we're not just capable of talking about and reciting, but it truly becomes something that we rely on with our whole heart. I ask this, Lord, for your glory and ultimately our joy. Amen.